Welcome back to the PFC Podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC Podcast. This is Dennis and today I'm with Jeff. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. Perfect. So um, it's been a hot minute since you were on last. So just in case somebody forgot, would you mind doing a real quick introduction of yourself? Great. Uh, my name is Jeff Siegler. I'm an assistant professor of emergency medicine, and I'm an EMS physician at Washington University in St. Louis. And I get the fortunate uh, position to also be the liaison from the National Association of EMS Physicians to the Special Operation Medical Association. Perfect. Perfect. And today, um, I'd like to go over a paper you had wrote, or at least the topic of the paper you wrote, about the use of ketamine and status epilepticus, which is yeah. a mouthful. Yeah. So uh, I was fortunate to uh, hop on a project that had been started by uh, a couple of other authors uh, that were um, Nick Williams, Lindsay Morgan, and John Friedman. And the paper that they uh, they came and asked for my help was uh, called Ketamine Efficacy f uh, for Management of Status Epilepticus Considerations for Pre-Hospital Clinicians in the uh, Air Medical Journal. Yes. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, um, because I got to be honest, I don't really know much about anything when it comes to status epilepticus other than what I googled just before we started. So what is status epilepticus and how is it different from any other seizure? Yeah, so seizures um, are the uh, inappropriate electrical uh, activity or discharge uh, within the brain. Uh, they can be split uh, across a couple different ways. Uh, you got your generalized, you know, tonic-clonic, uh, whole body seizures, and they can kind of go down into focal seizures where, you know, just part of an arm or eye twitching or kind of lip smacking. And then you could even have the more rare uh, absent seizures where nothing's happening and it's kind of like glazed over look when it uh when a seizure occurs it often um terminates itself within a few minutes and then if it keeps going you get into what's called status epilepticus which generally for right now we all agree lasts for five or more continuous or five minutes of continuous seizure activity or you have a seizure it stops you're in that post-ictal, and ictal is the word for uh, seizure, uh, so post-seizure period or post-ictal. That period goes on for a certain number of minutes, and if you have another seizure while in that post-ictal phase and you haven't gotten your brain to start working uh, right again, that would be considered uh, a status epilepticus. And then when that happens, uh, kind of the, the alarm bells start going off because we're worried that this becomes like a, a like a, a self uh, like a fire that starts feeding itself, and the brain once it starts into the status can kind of spiral out of control, and status epilepticus can become like drug resistant status epilepticus, and then they start adding uh, these terms like refractory status epilepticus and super refractory status epilepticus, and it's largely just based on you keep failing, you know, tier one uh, medicines, tier two, tier three, tier four, and they just keep working down and to the point where you're you're in status for you know several hours or even days at times um, and there's even a flavor of it called non-convulsive status epilepticus where 
the brain's still firing out of control, but the body has stopped shaking, um, partially due to drugs that we give and partially due to the fact that the brain just is sitting there quivering, but not, um, or you know, theoretically quivering, but not actually sending stimuli out to the muscles. Okay. Um, and I'm sure you've seen a patient with status before? Yeah, the the both pediatric and adult world where I work uh, and in and out of the hospital, you know, we see seizures a lot for different reasons. Um, most, I would say the overwhelming majority of them are done before five minutes. Uh, so we, we often don't have to treat. Uh, it's rare to see a second seizure. It's rare to see, you know, these prolonged seizures. Um, but they, they still occur from time to time, so we have to be prepared to move down our, our, our treatment guidelines uh, and moving from plan A to plan B, uh, plan C kind of thing. Um, this is a, maybe a little bit off topic, but, you know, you mentioned, you know, normally seizures will last a couple of minutes and you don't really have to treat. Why not, I guess, why don't you just jump into some kind of treatment if you can say like, well, it should last only a couple minutes and then we won't have to do anything. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard. It's, it's a difference of, you know, if I come across you right now and you're seizing and I have no, uh, there's no IV in place, I have no drugs drawn up, the time it takes to go start start the IV or go to the you know the the locker you know your med bag uh, the ambulance wherever you're operating out of and getting the medicine up the seizure often stops but if this was a situation where you're already in a facility you already got your IV established you got your benzo um, benzodiazepine of choice sitting right next to you you want to stop the seizure and if you could you stop it with a you know a drug and the patient will have less of a chance of going into that spiraling out of control because you don't know if that seizure is going to be a 30 second seizure or a 30 hour seizure so you would prefer to abort the seizure as soon as possible you you kind of play the odds game of knowing okay most of these stop on their own but this could be the one that says all right you know green light let's go and that you know the horse is out of the barn and you're not getting it back in okay i mean are seizures dangerous yeah, uh, they are because your brain can actually um, uh, start to uh, die from the over excitation and just continual just like redlining where your, your foot's on the gas and it's just going, going, going. And it, it can trigger these um, cellular pathways that can basically start killing brain cells. And okay. eventually you'll stop breathing because you're seizing so much that you're not you're not if you've ever seen a patient who's uh, having a full tonic clonic seizure that you know this the, the, the grand mal seizures as other people call it they're usually kind of hyperventilating like dead space ventilating um, where the, just the air is just only kind of going in the throat and in the large airways but they're not really you know ventilating their sats drop their co2 goes through the roof well eventually you get a brain injury from hypoxia you can get cardiac instability from acidosis um, the CO2 can climb so high that you don't take a breath, you know, so it just can start triggering all these things. So you want to ensure that the patient has an open airway, that they're ventilating on their own or you're ventilating for them. You're providing supplemental oxygen because each of these complications can injure the brain in a different way. And then it starts becoming cumulative, like you've got an anoxic brain injury and you've got uh, cellular damage to the brain from, you know, seizing for a certain number of minutes and that, all that adds together and bad things can happen. Yeah. Um, so kind of jumping into 
your paper and, and kind of the the idea you're trying to push. Um, you advocate ketamine for status epilepticus. Now, the Correct. current guidelines we're using tell us to use uh, benzodiazepine, so either Versed, um, 5 milligrams IV or IO, 10 milligrams uh, IM, or you can use diazepam, 5 milligrams IV, 10 milligrams IM, and I'm going to repeat that uh, either 2 to 3 minutes with Versed or uh, I think it's 5 to 10 minutes with diazepam. That's your frontline stuff. Um, and then it goes later on into like Keppra, phosphatidylcholine, which I've never seen, valproic acid, which I've never seen, and phenobarbital, uh, you know, um, which sounds pretty uh, archaic and dangerous. So, um, like all of those things, just what I've known about it, they seem everything is built on relaxing the body relaxing the brain or just turning the brain off. Why would you think ketamine would work when everything, at least that I know about it, is excitatory? It's, you know. Yeah, so when I when I try to describe the the actions of those those two kind of concepts of the the pathway that you just talked about with with benzos and then the second line agents and then you know phenobarbital and then you add in ketamine when I describe why we do these things to to my EMTs and paramedics or to um, any any other learner that I'm coming across, I describe the brain as kind of a gas and brake um, pedal in your in your car or truck. Benzos and the other drugs, they're meant to step on the brake harder, uh, for uh, lack of a better example. And then ketamine comes and it basically prevents you from stepping on the gas pedal. And so if you want to slow down, I, ideally you would step on the brake first, uh, knowing that that will, um, that will slow the brain down, slow your car down. You also want to prevent you from accelerating, and that's what the ketamine does by preventing the um, excitatory pathway of the brain, which uses a, a chemical called glutamate. So, and um, uh, and this this uh, four-letter uh, abbreviation called NMDA. Uh, ketamine is a blocker of NMDA, and that NMDA receptor uh, is the the equivalent of the gas pedal in the brain. So, if you want to stop the brain from going faster step on the brakes, and also prevent someone from stepping on the gas. Okay. Um, I didn't read this in the paper, but generally I would say uh, medics such as myself on the aggressive side. So um, should I do both? Should I hit him with a benzodiazepine and a large slug of ketamine at the same time? I'd say as of right now, we don't have the evidence to show that that's beneficial, and we have the prior experience of showing that that may be um, that may be detrimental and then I'll, I'll explain why so one we know that most seizures stop on their own and most seizures stop with a one or two doses of a, of a frontline agent like a benzodiazepine so now you're adding in an extra agent which may or may not even be needed and we have evidence that shows that Com combining sedatives, even though ketamine is, is touted to be protective of breathing, um, protecting your breathing ability, you add in a benzo, which we know is a respiratory depressant, and we add in the seizure activity, which is it's in and of itself a respiratory depressant, you increase the chance of the 
patient becoming uh, respiratory distress or respiratory failure into respiratory you know arrest and that has problems in and of itself which can cause brain injury anoxia and so i don't know that we're there yet to say it is you know um it is better you know two is better than one and so i think what we'll likely see in the future is you know, benzo, 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 ketamine, 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 you know, as we've shown, benzos have clearly failed to stop the seizure. Um, but right now, I'd say I would do, you know, one before the next as opposed to both at the same time. Okay, cool. Um, so, uh, yeah, how I guess how ideally, you know, not all well, ideally, it never happens to begin with. But um, let's say I have a guy with a traumatic brain injury. He starts having seizure activity, at least what I know, start doing benzo, uh, some kind of benzodiazepine. You know, probably if I don't have access, I'm gonna do IM, you know, 10 milligrams. Hopefully that works. I, th I imagine it's going to have some kind of effect at least. Um, and if I need to, you know, every two to three minutes, I'll do it again and again and again until Either I run out or he stops altogether, yeah. and now I have more problems, right? Um, like when do you? When should I start thinking about using ketamine instead? So we don't know the timing of that yet. Everyone has a kind of a a look that they're looking for when they're treating these patients. Of I don't like how well they're protecting their own airway, so I'm going to step in and protect it for them. And up until that point, I'm gonna be increasingly more aggressive with with stopping the seizure. Um, we know that seizures by themselves can cause you to stop breathing. And we know that some of the drugs like benzodiazepines can cause you to stop breathing. We're hoping that we can stop, we can stop the seizure with our drugs before you stop breathing but know that on the on the flip side of the coin, our drugs may cause you to stop stop breathing. So we're we're kind of doing this knowing some of these patients are going to stop breathing either from us or from the seizure activity. Um, right now, it seems like probably three doses of benzodiazepines is considered appropriate before you move on to the second uh, agent. What you know, and it's one of those uh, three drugs, levetiracetam, phosphenitoin, and valproic acid are the three kind of uh, drugs that are in tier two. And those, now the question is just, you know, is ketamine equivalent to those and can be part of tier two, or is it like tier 1.5? Uh, we just don't know that yet. Um, and EMS and the pre-hospital providers, both civil and the military, are limited on what drugs they can carry. They don't carry the pharmacy, you know, on their back yeah. or in their truck. So if if we can use a drug that is going to be used for other reasons, that would be better than having a third drug that only gets used for the rare scenario of benzodiazepine refractory status epilepticus. Okay. So we're still working on the timing. Uh, we don't have the studies yet, but um, there is emerging data that says that ketamine 
is beneficial in seizures. It doesn't appear to be harmful because that's all. That's the other side is that you know while it could be beneficial, it could be just as much harmful. Mm-hmm. So we want to know: uh, does it even stop seizure activity with no appearance of of harm? And figuring out: okay, is this uh, now we you know where in that that you know first dose, second dose, third dose? Um, are we doing it because we want the seizure to stop? So maybe we should be doing ketamine or sorry, uh, like uh, midazolam or, or versed, and then throw ketamine as your second line, and then kind of go flip flop, you know, like alternating. We're working on that. Um, we're trying to get people to uh, come up with you know uh, randomized control trials to show this you know this is a good strategy or this strategy doesn't work, and we're on to the next strategy. Okay. Um, I've never actually tried to ventilate a uh, patient who's seizing. I can't imagine that it's easy. Uh, is it? Is it one of those things like, you know, you do your benzodiazepine and you're you're continuing, but at some point you're saying like this guy, like he's not ventilating. My SpO2s are falling. My end tidal is climbing. However, you would be measuring that. Um, I think he needs some kind of ventilatory management. Um, like, can you just bag through it? Like, do they comply enough that you can just bag? Or? It dep- it, and, uh, as with all things in medicine, it depends. Um, yes. The, uh, the patients who are initially seizing, I suspect, will have more respiratory muscle tone and may resist um May resist the the um, the bag valve mask breath going in, uh, and so you may have to kind of just time it right and just kind of give them that constant, um, you know, every so often when you feel like they're taking a breath that you're kind of giving them that extra pressure, yeah. um, similar to how you know you just talked uh, you had those two episodes on on ventilator management and that, so like a pressure support breath where mm-hmm. they're they're triggering the breath and you're watching them and you're just kind of giving them that that extra little squeeze uh, with the yeah. baby. But at some point, they're going to lose that tone. They're going to kind of soften up, and then you're going to be able to ventilate for them um, with more of a pressure control breath um, okay. with the BVM or you know some kind of mechanical ventilator. And yep. then at some point, you just step in and uh, Take over. give them some drugs and put a piece of plastic in in some hole and uh, get some air in through that way. Okay. Um, at least what I found with the BVM, um, at least when I was trained to use a BVM, they said, wash the chest. Um, I found it not as easy as it looks. And um, what I, a technique I found is if I put just a tiny bit of pressure on that BVM, I can feel the patient pull a breath. I've been able to time it a little bit better. What do you think about that? Yeah, so what I suspect is that's a that's the human version of a um, pressure triggered breath where okay. um, with the ventilators you can trigger off of flow or off of pressure. And as the 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 patient sucks in and, and uh, dips the, pr- the pressure dips down, your hand is that like you're waiting for that to give away. And so there's they're inspiring decreasing the pressure by a certain amount and then you're following it up with that so i, I would i would say that if we talked with uh, some of the intensivists and respiratory therapists they'd say yeah that's probably the equivalent of a ventilator waiting for a dip in pressure and you're just there um you're certainly not over ventilating or you're not like ramming air in and then having it go into the esophagus yeah. And so you're really just there waiting to feel that compliance um, uh, in the bag change. 
and then you're just giving a nice supported breath. Yeah. Um, so just in my in my head, from what you've been describing, patient has seizure. I start doing uh, benzodiazepines. You know, initially, hopefully, I would imagine maybe the first one is I am trying to get either IV or IO access at that point, so I can now do IV or IO routes that way. Do it two, three times, and then if you're not getting uh, some kind of uh, stoppage of the seizure, then go into ketamine. Now, are you talking sedation doses of ketamine, or...? So we think the ideal dose as of right now is one milligram per kilogram or more. So a sedation okay. in, up to and including the dissociation kind of that where you can, um, you know, most people will do procedural sedation for something painful, like one milligram per kilogram. If they're going to do an airway management, they generally start at two milligrams. And it's just a matter of like, are you taking away that last little bit of uh, um uh, last little bit of airway reflexes and, and muscle activity and, and also how long is it going to last but we don't think subdissociative ketamine and certainly that kind of danger zone ketamine are beneficial as of right now more studies are needed to know can we get by with the pain control subdissociative amounts you know the the 0 0.1 0 0.2 0 0.3 per kilo so yeah. more to come hopefully in the future um during the study i imagine you guys either have done it or witnessed it or documented it in some way? I mean, have you seen good success with ketamine? Yeah, um, I have anecdotal evidence. Uh, we're trying to figure out a way to get a, a case series published of um, a patient with um, with a genetic syndrome, uh, you know, uh, born with a certain kind of syndrome that predisposes that patient to what uh, is basically benzodiazepine refractory status epilepticus. And we made an individualized care plan for this patient that after a certain amount of, of benzos were given, we would just give um, uh, in, uh, escalating doses of ketamine. And we saw really good, uh, you know, for a, a single patient over multiple episodes across a couple year period, we saw a really good effect to the point that the seizure activity stopped and the, and the family was like, well, we know that he, you know, uh, he's just going to stay at the hospital for a couple hours and then get sent home. Can we um, just have them? have the patient stay here and so we we uh we worked around that issue but there is emerging um comfortability i mean the paramedics across most of the united states um are comfortable with ketamine because it's been out there for the last few years and so they kind of know okay you know the the thousand yard stare the beating eyes uh, maybe some moans or squeaks they know that the airway reflexes generally are going to be maintained maybe there'll be a little bit of saliva so Paramedics are comfortable with that one per kilo, so I think that's where we're going to stay for now until someone smarter than us comes up with a an actual randomized control trial, that, like a dose finding trial. Okay. Um, obviously, uh, in your paper, anyway, um, you're not able to like carte blanche give everybody permission to do this, um, no. but unfortunately, you know when the rubber meets the road and you're stuck and all you have is benzodiazepines and a shaking patient that you want to treat is this is this something that is at least an option knowing that you're going to have to answer to this to your medical director yeah you know um 
obviously, depending on where you practice, will dictate do you have a uh, individualized uh, or do you have the ability to even consider that, you know, ketamine, certain states won't even allow ketamine to even be used. So that's, you know, you have to change state, uh, state scope of practice or, you know, yeah. military, um, military doctrine kind of, uh, to allow this to even be used. But in, in states that allow ketamine to be used for airway management, you, you can use it as a adjunct to initiate uh, airway management and then decide how far down the airway management strategy you want to go. Uh, no different than, you know, sedating uh, a patient for uh, who's in status asthmaticus, you know, different situation, really bad yeah. asthma that you want to put on a ventilator so that they ventilate and may or may not even need to, to place a breathing tube in them. So there is the ability to utilize airway management strategy and use ketamine as, okay, I'm going to manage this patient's airway and see how they do from a seizure perspective. Um, as with all things EMS, uh, and, and you, you already talked about it with, uh, with medical control, early uh, use of medical control will allow you the ability to form a plan even if you never get past you know, step A or, or your primary of your pace plan. Um, what you can say is, okay, you know, I've got a person who we either know is going to be a difficult seizure patient or, you know, they've still, they've been seizing for five, six minutes. We just got our first dose of benzos in. What are your thoughts on one, two, three more doses of benzodiazepines? And if that doesn't work, we try one milligram per kilogram of ketamine with the intent of monitoring their airway on, you know, uh, pulse ox and tidal CO2, supplemental oxygen, bag valve mask if needed. And if they are failing to, to maintain their airway, we will step in with basic maneuvers like jaw thrust, uh, OPMPA, or go up the line of a superglottic airway into um, endotracheal tube slash uh, front and neck access. Um, so hopefully, hopefully now emergency physicians are comfortable enough with ketamine to where they're like, okay, if they give a dose of ketamine, it doesn't automatically equal a ventilator. And so right. it allow it allows both the the paramedics and the um or, or medics or corpsmen or whatever uh flavor of medicine you, you're or titled and the physicians and um pas and nurse practitioners who are overseeing them allowing them to have this conversation say i like you know i'm comfortable with ketamine i'm comfortable with ketamine what do you think about ketamine if this patient is still seizing after one to three doses of benzodiazepines yeah. and hopefully everyone is on board with that yeah, I think it's definitely smart to always, when you when you read something in a research article or wherever you get the information, before you end up pulling the trigger in a stressful situation, talk to your uh, medical director, whomever they may be, and say, what do you think about this? You know, I read this, I heard this, so yeah. at least you give some kind of forewarning, like uh, I have one of my guys having this idea in his head, yeah. and he's just flat-hatting around. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's always uh, interesting to hear um, providers uh, coming up to me. Like, I heard this on a podcast. What do you think about it? And you're like, okay, let's let's pull this idea apart a little bit more. And what is the evidence? You know, if you if you read our paper, like we wrote a review article of other papers that have been published, and so. It's a lot of retrospective, observational. We don't have the 
we don't have a version of the what's called the Rampart trial, which was a, a well, well done study that looked at IM benzodiazepines versus uh, IV benzodiazepines, where they compared IM versed versus IV um, Ativan, and they they had uh, uh, blinded you know placebo, uh, like one of the drugs was fake and one was real. The patients got both, and they looked to see, you know, which which route was better. And they found that, and like we know now, IM initial IM benzodiazepines are better than att- attempting to get an IV on a seizing patient. And so that's what right. that's what led us to going to IM midazolam and uh, over IV Ativan uh, or, or lorazepam. We need that next, that kind of someone to repeat this with uh, a ketamine version of Rampart where we hit someone up front with, you know, a blinded syringe of, um, of ketamine versus midazolam and see maybe, maybe ketamine is better than benzodiazepine. We just don't know that part yet. Uh, but for now, have the conversation in the calm light of day so that way everyone is in theory playing from the same sheet of music and you're not like, Where'd you get this crazy idea from? Uh, you know, while while I'm stressed and while you're stressed, and there's a patient in the middle that is, you know, dec- you know, dropping their sats and and uh, and not ventilating well. That's not the time to kind of, uh, you know, hash out uh, these kinds of debates. Right. This one time at band camp. Yeah. Right? Um. Uh. Just a quick question about IM routes. Uh-huh. So. I'll- this is kind of a debate back and forth. Um, I've heard that lateral thigh is the best IM routes um, just because it holds, from what I've heard, it holds its perfusion a lot longer. Um, but yet I see people like stabbing essentially any other muscle that they can find. Um, is that is there any truth to that? The lateral thigh is better? We're taking the, the evidence from the anaphylaxis world with intramuscular epinephrine, uh, the lateral thigh has been touted as the best, most vascular uh, site for um, drug uptake. It also holds you know, a lot more volume than the deltoid. Um, the problem with the glute is that depending on the patient body habitus, there can be a nice... Uh, a layer of fat between the skin and the muscle and so your mileage may vary depending on the population you're treating um and so the thigh can can hold the uh the most and have what we think is the most the most rapid absorption uh of drug um, and so we're kind of just borrowing from the uh, epi world and pulling it over that being said, if the person is hypotensive, um, the the drug availability is is um, decreased and and this takes much 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 longer. Um, I just you you can hear a good conversation about the the issues with that um, from other podcasts like uh, MCRIT and emergency medicine cases with uh, the Amax four protocol, and they talk about you know. If you're crashing from anaphylaxis, anaphylactic shock, your your dose of epi can take you know five to fifteen minutes to get into the system. So, hypotension can occur at late stages of status epilepticus, um, and your dose of benzo or ketamine in the thigh may may take a while. So, 
this community is very comfortable placing intraosseous lines. And so I would, I would say that uh, early uh, use of intraosseous lines is preferred over three, four, five IV sticks. Um, if you have someone who you've deemed in status epilepticus, that is a critically ill patient until, you know, until they're waking back up and you never know if they're going to go back down again. And so I'd much rather, uh, you know, apologize for the mild discomfort of pulling an IO out later than uh, having to deal with the complications of unmanaged or, or delayed onset management of status epilepticus. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when it comes for ketamine, comes to uh, ketamine and uh, status epilepticus, is there anything that you, uh, anything else you would like uh, the listeners to know? Um, yeah, so we touched on in the paper the the safety um, and efficacy of ketamine in the uh, zero to three month or the neonate period is very um, it, it's not very well defined. We think it's bad, uh, so we we're current you know currently saying you know you know generally try to um, avoid uh, the ketamine for for those patients. Um, we just don't have as much safety data, um, and so we could have problems. If uh, ketamine is still somewhat um, frowned upon in the in the acutely psychotic patients, so if they start seizing, but it's that balance of would you rather have them uh, have their status epilepticus managed versus risk their psychosis getting worse? I would, as a medical director and as a you know a former as a paramedic and, and as a physician, I would say. I would rather treat status epilepticus over dealing with um, psychosis, uh, and so that's not really so much of a uh, of a big worry. Um, that you know, just like with any use of ketamine, it can drop your blood pressure. It's rare, but it's possible. So just be prepared to manage um, the hemodynamic effects of ketamine. Uh, and and status epilepticus in and of itself can, for lack of a better term, kind of burn out your sympathetic system, and and you can get these. Um, issues where you need to put patients on um, vasopressor infusions. Um, sometimes it's because of the of the seizure activity that's just, you know, overstimulating the body and kind of burning up all the catecholamines. Sometimes it's the, the drugs that you mentioned, like phenobarbital or propofol, like those are set, those are um, drugs that can drop your blood pressure. So it's a, it's a mixed effect. Um, any any sedative, whether it's ketamine or Versed or, or other, uh, can uh, slow or stop your breathing. So be prepared uh, to just uh, place patients in the, you know, the, the recovery position while they are seizing, and then uh, support their oxygenation and ventilation efforts. And um, I mean, we're we're still working towards getting that holy grail uh, a study of you know. Can we come out with ketamine auto injectors for status epilepticus? Uh, so more to come on that in the in the future. Perfect. Hey Jeff, I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Love to come back and talk about anything else you need. Perfect. I will. That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.